This time was truth the first casualty in Afghanistan. Peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, but Putin's not listening. Why impeachment won't go away for Trump. And the return of test cricket to Pakistan. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. In the Washington Post newspaper this week, there is strong evidence that the major allies failed to tell the truth of the state of the war in Afghanistan. Furthermore, they understated the war situation through governments and public statements by leaders of who was winning the war and the power of the so-called enemy. The Post's emphasis is how the American government sold the war in Afghanistan to its own people. But what about other countries, including the United Kingdom, in an American-led coalition of allies? Well, Sir William Patey was British ambassador to Afghanistan between 2010 and 2012 and had been head of the Middle East Department of the Foreign Office. And Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, joined us in the studio today. Um, Sir William, uh, is there anything in your memory that the British version of progress in that war was either untruthful or simply misinformed? Well, uh, it's a very difficult one to, to answer because at the time, uh, you know, the military are being asked by the government to give an assessment of what progress is like. And there are various different things going on at any one time. So uh, an overall assessment would be difficult to come come by. You know, you, it's, not, it's not until after we left that we realised that we completely failed in the war against drugs. At the time, we thought we were doing everything possible. Um, and indeed, uh, when we were in Helmand, we, we thought we were um, bringing uh, stability and governance to Helmand, and you could point to good things that were happening. But you know, in retrospect, you could you could say all the signs were there that once out once we left Helmand, it was going to revert back to its uh, traditional role of being in the hands of the Taliban. So uh, it depends on you know, there's an element of self-delusion at any any one time. But you know, the government didn't set out to lie to people. Yeah, interesting you say that because in this uh, Washington Post, what it, what it's saying is that sometimes the intelligence wasn't actually presenting the same pictures as what, what the Americans were selling to the public. So the intelligence was saying one thing and that was either willfully or, or, or chosen to not be looked at and, and the positive image was being sold. That wasn't your experience then? Well, I, I think the time I got there, you know, trying to sell a positive image of Afghanistan was was, was, was a pretty hopeless task. I mean, what we were trying to do was make the best of what we had uh, and we had certainly had a plan for getting out uh, and we wanted to hand over to the Afghans. But in any war of that length, whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan, the objectives change over time. So, I mean, when we went in, it was before my time, it, we went in to get rid of al-Qaeda, and we went in to overthrow the Taliban. That objective was achieved. Um, then then we were involved in a nation-building exercise, which, uh, frankly, is, is uh, almost impossible to win. I mean, is it inevitable then, when you talk about the objectives changing, that 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 does happen and it's understandable? Yeah, I mean, it does. It, I mean, it does. It does happen, and it, and often what I've found with politicians is that in order to convince the public that this is worth doing, because you're sending your young men and women overseas and they're dying in numbers and they're coming back wounded and the cost of the war, you're never going to convince people that's worth doing unless you 
uh, put the best positive spin on it, if you like. You know, I hate to use the word spin, but you know, you're not going to convince the British public this is worth doing if you're on on the one hand on the other. So there is an element amongst politicians that they have to. Um, sell it as best they can in order to, and it's not being dishonest about it because they are, are trying to achieve the stated objectives, which was to bring stability and peace to Afghanistan, to hand over to the Afghan security forces, to get our troops out, win the war on drugs, prevent terrorists from ever using Afghanistan as a as a uh, as a base. These are all legitimate, clearly stated objectives. Now, uh, how much progress you're making against them at any one time is 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 not a, is not an objective. Opinion. It's it's subjective, and it depends on who you talk to. Yeah, and, and on that point of opinion, when you were presenting reports on the state of the war, how much could you write and deliver your own version of success or failure, or did it have to be cleared by other nations? No, I was free to report back to my own government on how well we were doing, and we did. You know, we, there was no point in deluding ourselves. Um, I do. I mean, the the the, the military also they all, they want to put the best construction on something. And when the politicians ask military to do something, their first instinct is yes, you know, we can do that. Um, their instinct is not to put in you know a whole range of obstacles or why this doesn't make sense because that's not how the military responds to politicians. So if politicians ask them to do something, they will try and do it. Uh, even if they think it's, even if they think the objective is stupid, so there is a, a built-in bias, uh, positivity bias on the part of the military, and each, and, and you know, the very structure of our military, they were uh, uh, every six months they'd renew, you'd get a new commander, a new commander would come in with a new set of objectives, and and they'd all be terribly gung ho about uh, about achieving them. So there's something, there's a weakness built into the system. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is listening to you, Christopher. You know- when a soldier goes to, or especially a commander goes to, goes to, goes to a war, it's never the war he thought he was going to. And the six-month stage, uh, stage uh, renewal was was always thought to be daft, but nobody nobody really went so far to change it. You have to remember that war is not an academic venture, never is. But everybody, every academic has got the answer to why you're getting it wrong or whatever. And it's got its own pace. But what is this one common thing with I, most of the wars I've sort of followed? is that it creates its own unlearned lessons. And that's why a lot of the lessons of the warfare warfare that you're going through, that you're fighting, uh, are are pretty obvious. But by the time you get them through, if you like, the channels of everybody realising it, you get back to the basics. It's a bit like climate change. We all know climate change is bad for us. We'll eventually work out the only thing to do is to learn how to live with it. And that's how I I saw the whole thing with Afghanistan. We learned how to live with it. Uh, We learned how to live with the fact that you go to the war and you suddenly say, well, we'll do it this way. And then there are outside influences, like how the Taliban might react, how your local people might react, how the uh, non-governmental organizations might react to what you're doing. And the politics of it at home never allow you to fight the war that you might have fought if you'd been left alone, which would have been a very dangerous thing anyway. So, William Patey, what do you think the unlearned lessons are of Afghanistan? Stay out. Uh, it's just too complicated. Uh, I mean, we we should have. 
Uh, we should have tried to transition to the Afghans much more quickly. We should have spent less money more slowly. I mean, part of the problem, I think it comes out in the Afghan papers, is the amount of money uh, you, that goes into a country has a, has a huge impact, and it had a corrupting influence in Afghanistan. But because everyone's under a tremendous amount of pressure to achieve everything, politicians' timescales are much shorter than are required for nation-building. And if you're going to nation-build, it's a 10, 20-year uh, project. Very few politicians will think beyond their own election, uh, and uh, even if that, sometimes you're talking, you know, months and and and, and one year rather than than decades. So, I don't think democracies are very good at nation building. We don't have the patience for it. We don't have the the long term uh, commitment for it. So, um, I mean, my my lesson after having spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan is, uh, uh, we just can't do it. It's impossible. I tell you, the only the only war that gets properly attended to by government is when the nation itself is being attacked, and there's yeah, no absolutely. war after forty-five that could demonstrate that. Was a choice. Was a choice. Of just ones that you know you have so many options, and you've you've got the choice to stay in or stay out. Uh, and, and once you're in, you've got the choice to do X, Y, or Z. And as Chris says, the the moving parts are just so horrendous that it's almost impossible for any uh, serious politician, I mean, even any one politician, never mind the American, the President of the United States, most influential person in Afghanistan, but even he uh, doesn't have the uh, total control over what's going on. You've got a NATO alliance, you've got other players, you've got neighbors, you've got the vagaries of the local politicians. The moving parts are just too great for any democracy to handle. It's, it's interesting, interesting though, Sir William, because you, you talk, we obviously know what your view is now with hindsight site but I'm just interested yeah. when you were actually in Afghanistan when you went out there at the time I mean you were there when there was a, a huge troop surge American and UK I mean yeah. at the time were you thinking it was working because obviously with that number of troops it was having an impact it was certainly having an impact um, I, I knew the drugs wasn't working and we were wasting money on that I mean there were times when there was pressure for us to try and take Sangin. Uh, up in the north and I do recall saying that was a waste of time uh, I said even if we managed to hold it now and lost all these troops we'd never be able to hold it in the future and the Afghan government would never be able to hold, hold it so sometimes there are certain things that are, are obvious but certain things are not up for discussion I mean it wasn't up for discussion that we pull out of Helmand for instance and leave it to the Taliban that wasn't up for discussion even if that would have been a sensible thing to do uh, because you know that doesn't doesn't work. You know, you've got other constraints. We're there to support the Afghan government. We are making the best of it. So even when you know things probably are not going to work, the the policy constraints and the other constraints force you to to make the best of it, even if you think it's not going to work. Any regrets? No, I mean, you know, I just regret that. Uh, you know, well, I, I have one regret, one big regret that, that we didn't make more of corruption at the time, and we weren't. And we weren't prepared to put things on hold unless corruption was dealt with, because that's the biggest constraint in Afghanistan now. And there, and I know why we didn't, uh, because you know you can't pull the whole house down around you just because your Afghan interlocutors refuse to play uh, by the, the the rules you set. But I think if we'd been tougher on corruption at an earlier time and be prepared to move more slowly, we might have made more progress. So William Patey, former ambassador to Afghanistan, thank you. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the modern Royal Navy taking its place and its cod in fishery protection. We 
SBS Sit Rep. For five and a half years, there's been fighting between Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed rebels. But is there a chance this could now end? This week, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky met face-to-face in Paris. They have agreed to implement a full and comprehensive ceasefire in eastern Ukraine by the end of the year. Well, Jonathan Isle is International Director at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Jonathan, just describe the situation on the ground in Ukraine at the moment. The reality is that the war that started uh, in 2014 continues. People die on a daily basis. Over 14,000 people have been killed. Two large enclaves of ethnic Russians supported by the Russian government and paid by the Russian government are refusing to accept the writ of uh, the central government in Ukraine. And the country, Ukraine itself, is under constant pressure. Uh, Its own government has admitted uh, today that up to 10% of the country's national wealth may have been lost as a result of this war. So we have this deal that's been announced. Do you think they can make it work? Well, we've had over the last five years no less than 20 different ceasefire agreements and all of them have failed. So we have to wait and see whether this one is going to be the one that would deliver at least a modicum of stability. But almost everything else remains unsettled. For instance, the Russians have not accepted to withdraw any of their forces or the military equipment positioned on the territory of Ukraine. And they have not accepted that the authority of the Ukrainian state could return to these rebel territories, insisting instead that Ukraine itself should negotiate with the rebels and agree first to elections of the warlords in these two zones before there is any discussion about the settlement. So I think what can be said is that there may be a slight chance that the violence will stop, but past record is not very encouraging. Yes, from what you say, it does rather seem that Russia's got a lot more out of this than Ukraine. Well, clearly President Putin has succeeded yet again in his time-honoured method of claiming to be uh, both an impartial observer and mediator in the Ukraine crisis and the chief perpetrator of the crisis. Um, So it may look like a tactical victory, but it's not more than that, because ultimately what the Russian president wants is the lifting of the economic sanctions imposed on Russia by the European Union. And that has not happened. So he has made a step in public relations terms. He has not changed the situation or the pressure on Russia. And the talks were held in Paris, hosted by France and Germany. What interest do they have in this? Is it because it's a European security dilemma? Well, everyone claims that this is an open, running sore in Europe, as uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron put it. Uh, But uh, the reality is that uh, both France and Germany have very different interests in that. The French president wants to settle the issue because he believes that Russia should be brought into the European family and sees the future of the world as one of a confrontation between the U.S. and China in which the kind of confrontation in which the Russians should be on the side of the Europeans, as the French president 
put it. Uh, the German Chancellor, however, sees it quite differently. Uh, Angela Merkel is very doubtful about what can be achieved to the Russians and is acutely aware about the fears of the East Europeans about getting a settlement with Russia which acknowledges a Russian sphere of influence in Ukraine. Um, both the French and the German leaders were in Paris for this meeting, but there is quite a divergence of view between the way the French see it and the way the Germans do. How do you see this issue progressing? Well, at the moment, it's unlikely that this will result in any kind of a solution. Bottom line remains that the government in Moscow is determined that Ukraine will not become part of the West, as Russia sees it, but will be the sort of buffer state between Russia and the West, with Russia having uh, the influence over the region. So as long as that view remains in Moscow, it is very difficult to see how matters will change. Let us also not forget that although Ukraine has a new reformist and recently elected president, uh, Mr. Zelensky himself is under a lot of pressure back home not to make concessions to the Russians on what are seen by many Ukrainians as the absolute vital interest of their country, namely their territorial integrity. Jonathan Isle from the Royal United Services Institute, thank you for your time today. Uh, Christopher Lee, why is it so important what happens in Ukraine? Go and have a look at a map of Europe and look where Ukraine is. It's, 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 it's this huge country like an inflated milk bottle almost, um, which stretches from the Black Sea, roughly the Black, uh, the, 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 the Black Sea at, at one part, which is therefore Asia, right the way through and starts touching Western society, Western countries with different views and differing views on how all sorts of things uh, should be should be uh, sorted with the exception of warfare because they didn't want to get involved. You don't have to go very far up before you get to the Baltic and then the South is always in vision. In other words, the, the Ukraine represents the biggest uh, issue, not just as military, but the biggest issue in the whole of Europe today. It is a big issue which uh, a deflated uh, Europe will find difficult to understand. Uh, the Germans understand very much because the Germans think Eastern Europe better to say than the French do. And the Germans understand that East Europeans will worry if the if the Russians get too big a hold on the on the Ukraine, whereas the French want it all settled so that it doesn't consider it does it's not considered a problem. One thing to remember is what the Russians think. Putin sees this the same way as the Tsar would have seen it before the First World War, and the Habsburgs and you know where is the centre of Europe. And they would have talked about a place called Silesia and the Silesian question. Mm. Ukraine is exactly that today. And as far as Putin is concerned, although he doesn't make any intentions to do so, it is worth fighting over. And that is exactly what's happening. Right, let's move on to other matters now. And it's been quite a big week in the moves to impeach the US President Donald Trump. The Democratic-controlled US House Judiciary Committee has unveiled charges against President Trump, a key move in impeaching him. He insists he's done nothing wrong and has dismissed the impeachment process as madness. It's a bit of an interesting uh, development. Pantomime time, isn't it, Christopher? Well, it is, but he's not in charge of it. I mean, he can say what he likes, but he's not in charge. And what happens now is that this is in the hands of the Congress, which is what we would probably call the House of Commons. Uh, Congress can't shift it because they're Democrats opposed on the other side than, 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 than Trump. And so they will have to now 
find the evidence, and they've got two of the charges. This word impeachment is another word for charge. They've got two charges against him which they believe will stand up, and they will go to the High Court, and the High Court is the Senate. The Senate is full of uh, it, it, it's full of uh, Mr. Trump's own people, the Republicans, and so it, they'll bin it. Uh, and at the moment, that's the way it seems to go. But in the meantime, he looks like becoming uh, only one of three presidents has ever been approached impeachment. And that is a personal thing, as well as a historical thing and legacy, etc. cetera. Uh, um, Mr. Trump doesn't like that sort of thing. Yeah, so he hits out at Greta Thunberg to deflect, oh, deflect perhaps. <laughs> well, you see, he sees pre- uh, Greta Thunberg, and she, for people who Person of the Year, well, Time she, magazine. Those people that really don't care about the weather, she is the little 16-year-old uh, who is... Uh, Making a big impact. She's on Time magazine, Person of the Year. Now, now Trump believed that he was going to be Person of the Year because you've only got to add up, or as his people say, you're going to, uh, uh, his achievements, mm. that he should have been uh, So he says she year. should go out to the cinema and have anger management, uh, has anger management problems, end of. <laughs> yeah, it depends mm. what she goes to no. see. Now, uh, Christopher, uh, one of your favourite subjects, cricket. Uh, the first international test match for more than 10 years is being played in Pakistan this week. The national team has not played a test on home soil since the 3rd of March 2009 when the Sri Lanka team bus was ambushed by gunmen in Lahore. Six policemen and two civilians died and several Sri Lanka players and coaches were injured. Let's talk to BFBS cricket commentator Guy Swindles. Hi, Guy. Uh, it's a big deal for Pakistan, isn't it? Why is it so important? It is absolutely huge. Essentially, there are various reasons. One, it shows that they are being brought back into the world cricketing fold as a host nation um, because they've had to play all their supposed home games in the Middle East for the last 10 years and have largely been on tour. And that means that they just simply haven't been able to earn the money that they would by having home tours. It's also really a PR job as much as anything else that if if no one's coming to your country this does not look good for your national sport so they've worked really hard but they are making efforts in the right areas it's not a coincidence that the first test is in Rawalpindi uh, which also happens to be the garrison town that hosts Pakistan's army headquarters Mm. they are making sure that this is as safe as possible and we've seen this throughout cricket really since that incident 10 years ago. So Christopher on that note it is safe then is it? Uh, as safe as any potential I mean that's the, that's the tragedy of, 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 of all forts of terrorism. This could go horribly wrong but there's no sign of it yet uh, you can imagine what the security is like but it's very important because it's, I mean, Pakistan is, is, is a guarantor of the safety of all sorts of parts of the region. And it wants to have its own legitimacy. This also has its own problems. And it's no coincidence, for example, that last night, the first day of the test when it ended, uh, the Indians launched a satellite. It's the first satellite they've launched for a long time, and it was an intelligence gathering satellite, mm. and it's, it's displayed against uh, uh, Pakistan. But I want to tell you just one particular thing. Isn't it not surprising, or isn't it pretty wonderful, that this has come about when the Prime Minister of Pakistan is one of the best all-rounders in Rankan that I ever saw. <laughs> uh, yeah. You should have seen him from the sea end at Hove. <laughs> He'd be happy, yeah. Uh, Guy, uh, 2012, the British Army went out there and played uh, the first international team since the attack. Obviously not test cricket, but did it make much impact at the time? 
It did make an impact at the time because it was a team travelling to Pakistan playing. Um, Sri Lanka themselves also uh, sent a one-day and limited over teams uh, there earlier this year. Interestingly, not all the players, uh, including the skipper, Kura Karatna, actually went on that tour because they still had major concerns. But the players who did go came back and said, we think that things are safe now. We've seen it as well with the the England team travelling to Bangladesh. Um, they were worried about it. Owen Morgan and uh, Alex Hales didn't go on that trip because they were concerned about it. But the countries are doing all they can. Uh, the team were getting a full army escort to and from the hotel to the ground. There's little more that the countries could do to ensure um, that their visit, the people visiting them, are safe. And and uh, just as just as you were saying, that that is that is where we are in in this part of the world. But, but this it is, is a important. test match, and a test match goes to the heart and the pride of a nation whereas visitors don't. That, by, incidentally, that in, in, incidental uh, uh, visit of the Sri Lankans earlier, uh, there was a bombing in Lahore uh, at the time they were there, uh, mm. which, uh, which is, just shows how Guy, vulnerable they are. Guy, when will England play there? Well, there, there are conversations at the moment about England going on tour there in the next couple of years. Mm. Um, uh, England have a very good uh, head of security. And again, those lessons learnt in Bangladesh when uh, that was a bit of a visit into the unknown have been taken very much on board. I absolutely agree. I'm not sure Lahore is going to be the first place that people will be going back to play test match cricket. But Royal right. Pindi and Karachi do seem to be much safer. And I have a feeling that that is where the tests would be played. Guy Swindles, thank you very much. Uh, now, Christopher, a question to you. Do you know your place with your turbot and your brill? As, a, as, a, as the grandson, grandson of a fisherman, yes. <laughs> OK, good. Because uh, for some in the Royal Navy, it's essential to know the difference. They are the marine enforcement officers with the Fishery Protection Squadron. They're trained to inspect trawlers in British waters to ensure they're fishing legally. But to qualify, they need to know their fish, as Rebecca Ricks reports from Plymouth. It's 5am and we're at Plymouth Fish Market. It's the classroom for the latest batch of Royal Navy officers to go we on fish course. Leading the way is Lieutenant Commander Kate Scott. So my job's the uh, Fishery Protection Inspector, so um, I am the Royal Navy link between the Marine Management Organisation and the Fish Protection Squadron. And basically we run the Fish Protection Squadron course to enable our marine enforcement officers to understand fish ID. So when they go and do their fish boardings, they can actually um, identify the fish and therefore they've got some form of credibility when they're talking to the uh, master of the fishing vessels. On the market, they sell everything from turbot to brill, monkfish to rays. There's only two, two of these fish with under sun jaw, pull one of them. For some of these officers, including Sub-Lieutenant Alex Sharp, it's the first time they've got hands-on with fish. Initial reactions were, it stinks, doesn't, it's not great, but um, once you start to feel the fish in your hands and you kind of start to see the identifying features yourself, it does help with your fish recognition a lot um, and it's really useful when trying to do this job. But it isn't to everyone's tastes. Lieutenant Chris Gray is less of a fan. I just hate fish, really. Yeah, we've just been seeing what the daily catches have been, um, seeing how they process it, uh, seeing all the different types of fish that they catch uh, and sort of getting an idea of uh, you know, what sort of yields they're getting in Plymouth. Red Sea. And there's a serious reason why this all takes place. 
It's extremely important. If we don't sustain our fisheries, then there's a lot of um, industries within the UK that depend on fisheries. So if we don't um, ensure that fishermen are fishing sustainably and we manage our fish, uh, our fish stocks, then um, going forward, then generations of fishermen are going to have um, no jobs. After two weeks of training, they need to identify the fish species, all 52 of them. To do this, there's a test with fish that's been dead for a year and defrosted many times. Cod, that's the one. Brill, well done. Which? Great. It's just about the identifying features, making sure that you can uh, list them off in your head. And yeah, it felt like it went okay, but let's see the results first. Yeah, yeah. You might have to pick it up. Okay, so we had holes back there. To touch it. Uh, well, it's got teeth. Okay. Right, so it's got teeth. Uh, well, I could I could sort of name a few rays and skates. Didn't know there was as many rays and skates as there are actually in the UK. Um, so yeah, you can name the ones with the fawns on the back. Uh, and I can name, I know mackerel, they're quite, they're quite pretty fish, got like some nice stripes on them. Some have done better than others. Um, we will add all the totals up in the uh, classroom, add them to their final test result, which they'll do on Thursday, and then we will have top fish, as we call it, and they'll get a little cup. For those who pass, this isn't the end of their training. They'll need to pass another test at sea on a trawler. Rebecca Ricks reporting. Christopher Lee, how much of a role, how big is the Royal Navy's role in fishery protection? It's not huge because you haven't got that sort of number of vessels, but you make do with the vessels you've got. And uh, I remember in the, in, the, in the Cod War, for example, against Iceland, I mean, we had uh, frigates using frigates and we lost the war. Because? Uh, because the politicians lost the war. And that's the thing to remember about fishery protection. It's not the Royal Navy that will sort difficulties. It's the politicians that will uh, sort, sort, sort difficulties eventually. It's a bit like being a customs officer hmm. with a big ship. And that is it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. Join the discussion on Twitter. Follow us at BFBS SITREP. Join us next week for a special programme looking ahead at the year to come. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.